So I'm recording this in Arizona, where today it hit 108 degrees. And I was thinking, when in sports do we actually stop laughing about this stuff and dismissing it? Like, if the Diamondbacks are playing the Dodgers and it's 108 degrees out, when do announcers stop giggling about, boy, it sure is a scorcher out here, and start saying, man, this is not normal. I really mean that. I know sports serve as an escape, but there has to come a point when climate change is called what it is, climate change. And if it's 108 degrees in July, or it's 65 degrees in December in New York, we actually start talking about it. And maybe, just maybe, doing something. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm the New York Times bestselling author of nine books and the host of Two Writers, Sling and Yang, the podcast where one writer, me, talks writing with another writer every single week. Today's guest is TJ Quinn, ESPN's phenomenal investigative reporter and, back in the day, a New York Mets beat writer for the Bergen Record and the New York Daily News. Come for the chatter, stay for an insane story of how TJ was able to overhear Barry Bonds' guarded grand jury testimony. This is episode number 217. Let's sing some yang. Yeah, well, TJ, when I first met you, you were covering the Mets for the Daily News. It was 20-something years ago. And we're staring at each other on this stupid software, Zoom, at the end, hopefully tail end of a pandemic. And I feel kind of old. One of my favorite topics is talking about aging in journalism and aging in this profession. And I often feel like it's a little bit of a fight to hang on. For you, as both a traditional journalist and as a TV guy, so not all, you know, different mediums, what has aging in this industry been like? Uh, it sucks. I mean, it's, no, it's funny you say that. I had a flight a couple of years ago where we landed and some guy sitting behind me was a medical student said, uh, you know, hey, I, I, I grew up watching you. And I said, no, you didn't. <laughs> and it was just this reflective. I didn't mean to be so obnoxious, but I'm like, I don't think of myself as, first, I've only been in TV for uh, 13 and a half years. So, which to me still feels really new. I still feel like a newspaper guy. Um, like every day, there's still some expression that I don't know. Um, no, but the, you know, it's like a couple things jump out. One is keeping pace with the technology. Like I was slow to get onto Twitter. Um, Bob Lee would harass me about it. You got to be on there. I'm like, no, I don't. And it's the equivalent of saying, you know, my VCR is fine. <laughs> and, you know, in some ways, the medium is the message, right? You, you, have, to, you have to be current with the technology. Um, but then all of a sudden you go from, you're, you're in a meeting and you're in the younger half of the room and the old people are making fun of you for not knowing their references. And suddenly you find yourself in that group and these young production assistants and, you know, all the, the under 30 crowd, they don't get your references anymore. And things like Balco that used to be, you could ask anybody in sports what Balco was. Now, you know, I speak to student groups, groups all the time. Nobody's heard of it. Right. You know, this was the biggest story in sports and you sit back and, and, that raid happened, uh, what was it, 18 years ago? No, yeah, 18 years ago. Wow. And you think, holy shit, these kids, you know, they, they have no reference for this. So that kind of makes you feel old. Um, yeah, I mean, if you're going to stay relevant, God, you have to fight that urge to be comfortable in your own group and your own references. And, you know, my, my kids are really good about that. Uh, you know, but, and then the other thing is when you get to, like, you, you know, I was at the, the winter meetings um, last year before the pandemic, and this whole new, very talented crew of young baseball writers is there. And they treat you sort of like, you know, with, with respect, but like this grand old man, you're part of this generation now. And there's a different way of speaking. I mean, I, again, I've got kids and I've watched them grow up. But I was never so aware of, of just how different the language is from one generation to another than I was going to the winter meetings and realizing, yeah, you're not a kid anymore. And if you're going to stay current, then you've got to be engaged. Can you be like to a bunch of young baseball writers at the winter meetings? Can you be like, hey, guys, let's go hang out at the blah, blah, blah afterwards or 
do you have to almost know, do we need to know our lane a little bit? Yeah, no, I, it's I, I feel that way. I, I don't, cause I feel like, look, if I'm invited somewhere, I'll go somewhere. I, I feel weird asking, you know, some 20 something year old kid. Um, and I'm sorry if you're 20 something, you're still a kid. Um, now that I'm in my fifties, I can say that. Yeah. Um, yeah. You feel weird. Like you're encroaching. Um, if you're invited, great, but yeah, you don't want to tread. And, and the other thing is I get tired. <laughs> you know, I don't, I don't, I don't hang out like I used to, you know, it's like, yeah, 10 o'clock, you guys are about to start your second round. I'm, I'm going to go to bed. <laughs> it's a different life. So every year I would speak to a friend of mine is a journalism professor at the university of Florida. And for about 20 years now, he's asked me to tell the John Rocker story to students first year people going crazy, even five years, people who John Rocker, Oh, John Rocker, blah, blah. Nobody knows who that guy is. Like, not just like, it's not like one person raises his hand when I say, does any of you, nobody knows who he is. No one. He's like the Balco of athletes. That's crazy to me. Cause it was, I mean, there was no bigger story and you didn't have to be, he was one of those ones that just jumped into pop culture. You know, I had people who never read the sports page, never watched ESPN who would ask me about Lance Armstrong all the time. Cause he was one of those guys. Barry Bonds kind of at that level. Um, you know, I don't think he had quite the reach that, that Lance did, but you know, rocker was one of those ones, you know, especially when I was covering the Mets at the time and, and they roll into town, it was the biggest thing in the world. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, if when you're in the thick of it and for all you 20, 30 somethings out there right now, whatever you think is the biggest story in the world right now, no one is going to remember in 20 years. It's just the life cycle is limited. Actually, to get really depressing. That's why when people say, not that you get asked that often, when people say, what do you want your legacy in journalism to be? I'm like, nobody's going to remember me. Like, that's a ridiculous question. <laughs> I don't, I will not have a legacy. Like, I, my legacy is someone may see one of my books at a 99 cent store 10 years from now. Like that's pretty much, and that's okay. I think that's okay. I don't need, no, I don't know. Do you, do you concern yourself with your legacy as a sports journalist? No, because I feel, I don't, well, put it this way. What I'm far more concerned about, I think, or if I think about it to any extent, it's how am I thought of by my peers, right? And and the truth is, you don't even care what all your peers think. Just the ones that that you care about. Um, with the stuff that that we do, and you know, people may not say Jeff Perlman, investigative reporter, but you are. I mean, you know, the work that you do, even though it's you know almost entirely books now is, you know, heavily investigative work, you know, people who've done that and know what it is and know what the job is. Um, honestly, that's, that's what I want is for them, you know, for them to say, Hey, you, you've, you're doing this the right way. It's cool. If people know who you are, they remember something that you did. That's great. But you do learn in this business, especially in TV, how fleeting it is. That was one of the things about going to ESPN was, you know, everybody here is on TV and everybody here is replaceable. And just because you feel like hot shit on one day, you got one big story, you know, that it's really fleeting. So don't put a whole lot of emotional investment into it. And, you know, so, so beyond that, is anybody going to know me in five years? I don't know if they know me now, you know, <laughs> but it's, uh, no, it's, it's, it's very humbling business that way. Wait, this is going to be like um, how there used to be when we would watch TV and it'd be like a very special blank. This is going to be a very depressing episode <laughs> of the podcast. What the fuck, Jeff? This is what you're talking about writing. And now I'm suddenly, you know, my, you know, my knees are bothering me and I've got my back. gets a little stiff and, you know. <laughs> yeah, it's a little grim. I do. Wait, I do actually think one thing you said is interesting, which is, and I actually think this is a really important thing because when you're younger, you don't realize it, which is this. There are a lot of people who we came up with, like you and I somehow have been able to survive in this business. There are a lot of people through the years who, and we probably have different people come into our minds who were really hot shit, thought they were hot shit, knew they were hot shit, had an arrogance about them as journalism. And the next thing you know, my final day at blank today, really looking forward to the next chapter in my life. And they're terrified. And that's the moment when you realize that you can be as huge a name in this business as possible. You are imminently replaceable. 
as soon as I say that, I mean, there are a few people you worked with who came to mind. There are a few people I worked with who came to mind. People I worked with at the Daily News and at, at ESPN. Um, yeah, I mean, it, especially like one of, my, one of my favorite little rabbit holes when I'm kind of researching or wasting time is to go through newspapers.com. Right. And, you know, I, I love and I love flipping through old pages. And you always stumble across stories and writers from a generation or better yet, three generations ago, who were the biggest freaking deal in the world. Um, you know, it's like there's there's all this. I was thinking about this. There's all this talk today about um, using Gehrig's speech as a as an NFT, and I was thinking about Lou Gehrig Day happened because of a Daily News sports writer, Paul Gallico, who was at the time a legend. Everybody knew who Paul Gallico was. Nobody knows who he is today. Sports writers don't know who he is today. He was also a misogynist and an anti-Semite and a number of other things, but nobody's perfect. Nobody's perfect. <laughs> um, yeah. And it's, it's, you just can't, the people who get tied into the idea of being a celebrity and, and this, this is one of the things about the current climate that is really, really toxic or really dangerous is it's so easy to get Twitter famous. It, you are rewarded so quickly for I'm the one billionth person to talk about hot takes or anything like that, but it is intoxicating when you get that attention. And the first time you're recognized in an airport or a restaurant or somebody wants to give you a free French fries at Shake Shack, which um, my son thought was the funniest thing he ever saw in his life, you start to think, oh, this is this must be real. And then it becomes more about your own name than it does about the work you do. And that's that's the biggest trap to me. And, you know, like when I talk to student groups, I, I get a lot of questions about building your brand. And, you know, I just want to bang my head against the wall. Don't worry about your brand. Do the fucking reporting. Do the job. Learn how to do your craft. The rest will come from it. And, you know, the rest is all what you care about. If you care about the celebrity, fine, chase that. If you want it to be about the stories, then then let go of the other stuff. I mean, that's one of my favorite, favorite monologues in the history of this podcast. And I, um, there are a million times I see people, especially on Twitter. And you're like, does this really make you happy? Like, is this, is this really, is there real happiness here? Chasing that next tweet that's tweeted out. Like, is that real? Is that really going to do hot? Do hot takes really do it for you? Is that really what makes you, I'm, I'm at a loss for that. I don't understand the joy that, cause it's so short lived. It's very true. Well, it's all endorphins. You know? Yeah, right. Exactly. I mean, it really is. I mean, it's, again, I have no, really nothing particularly insightful to offer on it. You know, I just, it's like I watch my kids and their presence on social media. And, you know, my biggest relief as a parent, I don't want to say success because I don't think I have any much, you know, too much to do with it, is, is that not diving into that attention for attention's sake. And, Look, that, that's also not a new thing. Part of it's just the media makes that possible. You know, we grew up and our parents grew up with, with writers who, look, Dick Young is kind of a legend. Dick Young was also a prick, you know, he, and he really, you know, there was a generation of writers who went after people because it got attention. Now, I think Dick Young believed it. And I think that, you know, I don't think he wrote a, a dishonest word as far as I know. Um, but the idea of trolling is not new. It's just that you get way more attention for it now. And people who get attracted to this business, sometimes that's what attracts them. That's kind of depressing. Um, but I see so much good journalism out there that I don't, I don't really lose, lose heart. Right. I agree. You were just a guy I knew who covered the Mets. And I would see you at games and I'd see you at spring training and different events. And you were a baseball writer. And I knew you as a baseball writer. And then one day you're hired by ESPN, 2007? Correct. And all of a sudden you're this guy who's this investigative and, and I think maybe I just misidentified you the whole time. Like, have you always thought of yourself, even when you were a newspaper guy, even when you were a B guy, as a quote, I don't, a digger or an investigative sort of reporter. Is that how you viewed yourself or was going to ESPN a new role and new, new tools to learn? Oh, I'm so much more, Jeff. There's so much to me. Sex symbol. Man about town. <laughs> All those things. Yes. Rock on tour. Um, no, I think, I mean, I, I, 
the investigative thing I kind of stumbled into. I mean, I was at, I had two young kids at the time. We were thinking about having a third. And this would have been 2002. And I was still at the Daily News. And beat life just grinds you to death. And it's, you know, horrible for your family life. Um, what really killed me was um, spring training when I hadn't seen my kids for weeks. And my youngest um, at the time uh, was, you know, my daughter. Like, like she, didn't, she didn't recognize me for a second, you know? I mean, she was an infant. And she was, you know, that killed me so the opening that was there at the daily news um was on the investigative team and i kind of had to make a pitch for it in-house you know terry thompson the formidable uh editor of you know she was the investigations editor and uh managing editor for sports for a while i learned tons tons from terry um she you know this was going to be a national search and so during the 2002 season um, she made me audition. And while I was covering the Mets, um, I had to put together, um, I just from talking to people in the clubhouse, I guess I was kind of a digger. And, and part of that, to answer your question poorly and haphazardly, I mean, I, I started my career in news. I was a news reporter in Chicago on the South Side, cops, courts, school boards, zoning meetings, I could tell you all about uh, community development, block grant funding and tax income and financing and That'll be the next stuff like that. That'll be the next episode. Oh, thank God. The sequel. Yes. Um, Into the sewer board with TJ Quinn. Um, So I had that background for news and I cared about it. And when I started digging, I started looking for ideas in 2002 for, all right, how do I audition for this investigative team? Someone in the clubhouse told me about the rise of guys using human growth hormone. And that looked really interesting. And so I ended up doing the piece, you know, we had, used to have that big Sunday spread inside the back page on the daily news and about the use of HGH in baseball. And to my knowledge, it was the first time anybody had written about HGH in the game. And I just kind of had a knack for it, I think. And I don't know if it was so much a digger, I guess so, but it, it really seems, I, I think it came from this insecurity of, God, I don't want, I don't want to miss anything. I just want to make sure I don't miss something and tell half a story. So part of it was just paranoia. Um, and then, you know, credit to Terry, right topic at the right time. I mean, cause you know, drugs became really the big topic in the, in the early part of the aughts. I'm fascinated by this. Like you've done a ton of stuff from Balco to general PD usage, biogenesis, everything across the board. And you're writing and investigative, investigating and digging into a subject that the participants have no desire to talk about. Like nobody using drugs wants to talk about it. Nobody getting the drugs to these people wants to talk about it. Um, it's a big question, but how, how do you get people to discuss things that they desperately do not want to discuss? I was going to ask you the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> It's... Um... Uh, it's so scattershot. Um, I mean, like, let's, let's go back to Balco. I mean, that was, um, so that raid happened September 3rd, 2003. And I'd been an investigative reporter, I think for a year and a day at that point. And the thing that jumped out was that uh, they didn't just raid um, uh, the Balco lab. Um, and for you kids out there, this was, this lab outside the near the airport in San Francisco and in Burlingame, California, where this guy named Victor Conti, who was well known within the Olympic world because he had been kind of a fitness guru to a number of Olympic athletes. Um, they raided his lab was raided combination of local and federal authorities. And he was running this huge doping uh, scheme, fastest man in the world, fastest woman in the world, NFL players, um, track and field and major league baseball players, including Barry Bonds. And what no one knew at that day, but Barry's uh, tra- personal trainer, Greg Anderson, his home was raided that same day. And that's what jumped out because all of a sudden Barry, he had the single season record and everybody had seen what happened to his body. Um, I mean, it was just comical. And then he had a legitimate shot at, at Hank Aaron's record. And um, 
getting into that was kind of tough. I mean, I, I went out to the Berlin game. I tried to talk to Victor Conti. He wouldn't then. Eventually he did. Uh, talk to the people um, who it was a part of a strip mall. I don't know if you, I, I would guess you've been there. Um, I don't know if I have. Yeah. I don't know. It's, I mean, I, I know a, a lot of reporters were and the people there were kind of sick of seeing us, but they were, they were nice enough. And then you got to start with the feds. And one of the things that was really tough for me was when a year after that happened and, and Barry was appearing before the grand jury, I was out there with everybody else. And this is one of those you can never plan for it moments in your career. I was actually able to overhear part of his grand jury testimony, and which was just nuts. <laughs> that was, so I get to the building. It's funny. I just my sister was a grad student at Cal at the time, and I was, you know, was on the phone with a friend of mine saying, this is the dumbest assignment ever. It's a grand jury. By law, they're not allowed to talk about it. But I get to hang out with my sister and see some friends and great. And I get to the Philip J. Burton building in San Francisco, the, the federal building on the 17th floor. And I see all these reporters there. Um, like there's Mark Fainruwada, whose name I didn't know how to pronounce at the time. Yeah. And a bunch of other people have been huge on the story. And um, I, I had that old New York beat writers paranoia of I don't want to make a call near anybody. So I went to the hallway. I went down to the left. I found a little alcove uh, where I could make a phone call. And uh, Bonds wasn't there yet. And I so <laughs> I called. Uh, I, well, while I'm standing there about to call Terry Thompson, actually, to check in, I could hear people sort of milling about behind the door. And I thought, why would people just be hanging out on this floor? That doesn't make sense. And then I thought, well, the grand jury would be. He's not here yet. So that could really just be the grand jury shooting the shit. And so I went back out to the vestibule and there was a, a fire map on the wall. And I looked at, okay, here's where I was. And here's where people come in when they go to the grand jury. So there's probably like an ante room. That could be it. And so I called Terry and said, I think I can hear the grand jury. And she said, you're kidding. I said, no, 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 really. And so she, she's an attorney herself, and she's like, all right, don't go anywhere. <laughs> and so she gets on the phone. She called house counsel. They called outside counsel. I went back out, and then so I was there when Barry arrived. So he goes in. I go back to my spot, and I can hear him. And I, he's sitting pretty close to the door that I'm on the other side of, and I can hear the assistant U.S. attorney's questions. I called Terry back and said, I can hear him. And She's like, all right, I have some questions for you. <laughs> um, did anyone say you can't be there? Was there anything restricting you? Was there a rope, a divider, anything? Did you touch the door? Did you try to touch the door? Did you open the door? Did you put a device against the door? The answer was no to everything. And she said, all right, then the, the attorneys are all in agreement. The burden is on them to secure the proceeding, not on you to avoid listening to it. Wow. So I sat there with my you know, 2004 large cell phone tucked in my neck and pretended like I was on the phone with somebody and I could hear his answers. Now, the problem was, unless I was 100% sure of the answer and the context, I couldn't touch it. Um, but I did clearly hear them ask him about flaxseed oil and the cream and the clear. And did you take, take these things? Yeah, but I didn't think they were steroids. I trusted Greg. So, um, it, cause it's not like I could go up to Barry afterward and say, can I just check a couple of quotes with you? Right. you know, um, that, uh, that question he asked you in the second inning, what was, <laughs> what was that? How'd you get around on that? So I'm on a New York deadline in California. I had to write my story out by hand. I went out to the street and I dictated. And then I called a friend in San Francisco who's an attorney cause I wanted someone thinking of me. And I called the guy who had been the uh, acting dean of the School of Journalism when I was at Mizzou, um, legendary figure, George Kennedy, just to talk through it with him. So I, I go back inside and everyone says, oh, you missed him. And I said, oh, damn. And the AP guy, that's another good lesson for young journalists out there. Always find the AP guy because he or she was, is your lifeline. I said, well, I got a little quote I can share with you. I said, great. <laughs> So I wrote this story, and the next day it appears in the New York Daily News that Barry Bonds 
told the federal grand jury that he didn't know these substances were were steroids. And no one knew what to make of it, because how is it that uh, and, and the way I attributed uh, the information was um, Bonds apparently was unaware portions of his testimony could be heard outside the grand jury room. Wow. So everybody, everybody freaked out. And I got a call from a different AP guy, which I could remember his name. He was kind of a prick saying, you know, I've worked in that building for 17 years. How exactly did you hear that? And the news was terrified I was going to get arrested. And so they said, don't talk to anybody, which I actually thought was kind of bullshit. Um, but um, hey, why do you think assistant it was- U.S.? Because our job is to go talk to people who don't want to talk. And so why, if we think that's OK for other people, is it not OK for us to be available? Great point. Um, you know, that's it's look, I get it. And, you know. Uh, and I, as an employee of Disney, I'm, I'm well aware of what I, things that are okay for me to talk about and things I'm not. Um, but I just felt like we expect that. I, I, in fact, I think what I said at the time is so from now on, I only go through PR people. Is that our policy? And, you know, whatever official word I get from PR, that's, that's good enough for us. Right. Yeah. Um, but, uh, and, 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 by the way, I, you know, most requests I get, I do have to send to Disney PR to ESPN right. PR. So um, anyway, the assistant U.S. attorney said um, impossible couldn't have happened. And Barry's attorney, Mike Raines, his criminal attorney, said he's full of shit. He doesn't know what he's talking about. Well, the reporter who reached me um, and told me about the assistant U.S. attorney's quote, I said, Look, I can't talk to you on the record, but what's he saying that that I'm lying about my source or that I made it up out of whole cloth? And he said, well, actually, he didn't say I said, all right, just curious. And then I called Mike Raines and left a message saying, if you spoke to your client, you know, I know exactly what I'm talking about. Um, Please call me back. But no one from any government agency would talk to me after that day. I could not get a phone call back. And a week later, so, I mean, they, they figured it out, um, but there was a huge reaction to it. There was a, an order sent out by Judge Marilyn Patel, the chief, uh, chief judge of that circuit, the next day saying anyone attempting to eavesdrop on federal proceedings will be held in criminal contempt. Um, and, and then I got a call from another reporter saying, can I ask you how you did it? And I said, well, I, I really can't. And he said, well, because... He said, turns out if you go down to the hallway and you go left, there's like a little alcove there and they've got a federal marshal there with a red rope in front of it. And I said, yeah, they figured it out. <laughs> but, but nobody would fucking talk to me for a year. And so finally, one of the investigators I was trying to get, because this all started with your question, how do you get people to talk right. to you? Uh, a great way to get them not to talk to you is to overhear grand juries. But I still needed somebody. And I found... There was one investigator I was trying to get and couldn't get past a receptionist. And I found a document in the case file that was a fax from his office and it had the fax number at the top of it. So on a Sunday morning, I called every number I could think of in that sequence. And after 37 calls, I got his direct voicemail. And he actually called me back. And was not a great source, but at least I got to him. At least I broke through. But everyone was so paranoid of being accused of sharing grand jury information with me uh, that it was, you know, it kind of sucked. And but then you start, you know, the biggest thing with, with getting people to talk to me, I, I, I really feel it's counterintuitive and it's going to sound a little Machiavellian. Um, and if it was, it didn't start out that way. But. What I would find is that with people early on on a sensitive topic, I would tell them, hey, look, I'm not going to promise to look out for you or tell your story the way you want it to be told. That's not my job. Your job is to advocate for you. And if you've got a lawyer or an agent or somebody who's looking out for your best interest, that's who you need advice from. But what I will promise you is I will be fair. I will tell your story you know, fully and completely. Um, I'm not going to throw curveballs at you. Um, and 
you know, I did that because, you know, people are not sophisticated with the press. They, they expect you to be their buddy. And I don't know how many times, you know, it comes out through court documents or whatever, but you see some email or voice message that some, usually some network TV producer left with someone saying, I'll be your buddy. I'll look out for you. I'll tell your story when no one else will. And it's just, it's lying. Yeah. And I've found that if I'm really clear with people about what my job is, um, they're far more likely to open up. And because I think they just kind of understand where you're coming from in the first place. And so from there, you just kind of, you know, hopefully build relationships, but it's um, the, the, there's, there's never one surefire way. I just want to say, I have a lot of questions here, but I am um, early on in my career. <laughs> I was at the Tennessean and I was a cops reporter and um, there was a, there was a murder, a shooting in Nashville. And I went out to the scene. I was sent out to the apartment and I get to the apartment complex and there's a, uh, there's a door at the apartment and there's one yellow piece of tape, but it doesn't say police tape or anything like that. And I, I'm by myself. I'm like 22 and a total numbhead. And I check the door handle and the door's open. And I call my editor and I say, Hey, is it okay if I open the door and look inside the apartment? And the re office receptionist answers. And she says, Dwight's not here. I'll get him to call you back. And I'm waiting and I'm waiting and I'm waiting. And finally I'm like, fuck it. I'm going in. And I open the door and there's blood on the wall and there's bullet holes and I'm writing it all down. And the, the big ass shoe size phone rings after I'm done. And it's Dwight, my editor. And he goes, Jeff, whatever you do, don't go in the apartment. Do not go in the apartment. I was like, yeah, sorry about that. When I was working in, in Chicago in news, you know, you, you get a number of calls, but you know, a kid who was, you know, shot in the street and you'd have to go knock on a door in a housing project and you know, people don't want to see you. You still have to go ask. And what I started doing was, and here, here's the thing, I, I, cause I think it's a huge mistake in this business to feel like people owe you anything. I agree. And I feel like way too many people do. And I think the Naomi, uh, Naomi Osaka um, story is a great kind of case study in that. And so, you know, I think about that, like, all right, I'm asking you to open up your life and talk about the most painful stuff in the world. What am I giving you? Right. And so I'd been to um, these victims advocate support um, rallies and things in, in Chicago and all on the South side. And I had some business cards from them and thought, God, just, just bring that. And so I went, you know, knock on doors and said, Hey, look, I'm doing a story. I'd like for your son to be more than just a name and a police blotter. I'd like to know more about him. If you don't talk to me, just here, take this. These are the only people who understand what you're going through, you know? And I don't know if that crosses a line to advocacy or something else, but at least, it, you know, it told them one, I think it was a good on its own, but two, it told them at least they give a shit, you know, at least, you know, I'm not just here to smear your kid. I, I want to know who he was. Um, and usually people would invite you in and, you know, I've had plenty of doors slammed in my face, but you know, just there's really nothing wrong with being human in those moments. Can an argument be made that by overhearing the grand jury testimony and by writing about it, you actually hurt your ability, your long-term ability to report on this and that the reward wasn't worth the, what you got out of it or no, was it just such a big scoop that it was completely worth it? No, it's totally worth it. <laughs> it was, it was totally worth it. It was, um, no, it was. First, I mean, you get a you get a great story out of it, which is is part of it. Um, and I don't just mean the story that appeared in the Daily News the next day. It's you know, it's twenty years later, and and it's still a fun story to share. And it did kind of screw me, but um, I don't know that it ever hurts you. Um, you know, I was a little worried about any legal exposure, but that's why it's good to have good lawyers behind you. And long term, I did fine on that story, I think. And, and, and part of what it does was, was people thought, all right, I mean, th this is one of the weird things, right? How is it a guy from a New York City tabloid comes to San Francisco and he's the only one who figures this out? And my answer is dumb fucking luck. And, you know, and so be it. And if that's what it takes, great. Um, my close friend and longtime colleague, Bonnie Ford, you know, has 
you know, we speak to a lot of classes together and she always says, no, it's the lesson about not hanging with the crowd. I'm like, no, it's, it's not. It's a lesson about being really lucky. Isn't it a little of both though? I like, I do think there's something about, like, I'm a big fan. All right. Like just as an example, I did a story a few years ago uh, for Bleacher Report about a basketball player who shot and killed in Dallas. And I wanted to see the apartment complex where he was killed. It was a gated community, blah, blah, blah. I found out there was an apartment available. I booked a tour of the apartment from a real estate agent. I went on the tour. I said I had to use the bathroom. I did use the bathroom and I left the tour and I walked around the apartment complex and I got the details I needed. And I didn't, I mean, I guess I wasn't really looking to move to Dallas, Texas, but I didn't, I mean, you know, I, I do think there's something about sort of just trying to find little gaps and trying to find little slots and seeing where you can kind of find those, you know, like squeeze into places where maybe 99 out of a hundred of our peers are going with the rest of the media into the pool. And you're like, no, I'm going to try squeezing into this little gap. Yeah. I, I think this whole job is squeezing into those little gaps. It really is. And, and I learned <clears throat> that is a beat, excuse me, that is a lesson I learned on the beat and, and seeing I think you talked about him with somebody on, on one of your podcasts, but like watching George King cover the Yankees for the New York Post, you never saw him talking to another writer. Uh, you only saw him talking <clears throat> to people in uniform. And it's easy. Season's a pretty long time and it's fun to sit and you know, stand and chat with other people, but you realize you're not going to get anywhere with them. Look for something else. Look for something different. During the Barry Bonds chase, it's like a little thing. I mean, really a little thing, but while we're all waiting for Barry to hit number 714 and then 715, um, you know, I was, I was, it, there's, there's no new story to write, but I, I was watching the guys who had to get the number ready. And then I guess it was still Pac Bell Park. Um, I can't yeah. remember what name, it, corporate name it was then, but um, the kid who's holding the number four that he's got to change the 713 too. And every time Barry comes up to bat, he's got to get over there and wait. And so I'm like, all right, there's something different. So I went and hung out with that guy and, and, and went through a game, just his whole routine of getting up and everyone around him getting excited and then watching and then something else happens and he has to go sit down. Um, again, that's like a little thing. Um, but I remember like one of the ones I'm most proud of, and I still don't understand why this didn't end up in print. Um, because my editor at the time is a nice guy, a dumb fucking decision. But um, when I was covering news on, in, on the South Side in Chicago, one night Mel Reynolds, who was running for Congress uh, against the legendary Gus Savage, um, somebody took a couple shots at his car while he was campaigning. And I just finished the shift, heard it on the scanner, said, I'll, I'll do it. And I ran out there. And so they're at... I forget what hospital it was in the South side, but the car is out there and you can see a couple bullet holes in it. I just had this thought pop into my head. What was he listening to? And so I asked the cop who was standing there, Hey, what's in the tape deck? And he said, I don't know. I said, can I check? He goes, yeah, go ahead. So I got in the car and I popped the deck and they were listening to his, his campaign. Ad. Um, and to me, that's just kind of a fun little detail, but it's the sort of thing like, everyone's standing around out there waiting for an official word from Chicago police or from the hospital or something. And I'm thinking, what's nobody else doing? What else is interesting out here? Still to this day, I don't understand why they didn't use it, but whatever it was. I think there's a mindset where you look for things like that, you know, just a little different. Uh, to me, it was a fun little detail, but uh, no, it was, that, that pissed me off. I always say, I always say that, People who last in this business, when they're interviewing Mike Trout, they're looking at the scratch on his wrist or they're looking at the tiny picture behind him in his clubhouse. And the people who may not last that long are asking him about hitting 290 with runners on base. No, that that's that's always been the really fun stuff. And it's the things that, well, like, for example, you know, Tyler Skaggs a year and a half ago, um, some of this we were able to get on air, some we didn't, but... I went down there and I was able to find, and I gotta be really careful how I describe this, um, but I found someone who had seen him uh, not long before he died and could tell me what his last meal was. And 
like that to me was a big deal. Just oh. a little, you know, detail about, about something that's going on. There's, there's a lot of, you know, the attention was on the fact that he died, that it was drug related. Um, the fact that it was an angels employee, Eric Kay, who'd possibly been providing him with drugs. Um, but yeah, you, you just, there's, there's so much more to that. And I was in that hospital, excuse me, I was in that hotel for days, um, trying to get every detail I could. And we couldn't, I tried to make a reservation in that room, um, and couldn't do it, but got one directly below it that I was told was the same layout. And so same thing could describe where everything was in the room, where he would have been, you know, every, every, it's funny. They didn't ask why I wanted that room when I asked for it. Yeah. <laughs> um, you think they'd guess, Oh no, sorry. It's occupied. Wait, are there, um, are there people? So there are going to be people, and I'm sure you've encountered these people who are of the mindset. The guy's dead. Why can't you fucking leave this story alone? Like, why do you guys, you guys, you and I, you guys, people, right. why do you guys have to keep doing this? He's dead. Why is this a thing? Why do you care? Blah, blah, blah. Let it go. He died. His, fa his family, you're killing it. He has kids, blah, 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 blah. Um, I never enjoy those confrontations. I never enjoy those conversations because they, in a way they cause you to think, well, I don't know. I see their point on this. Like, what do you say to these sort of people who are like, why can't you just leave this alone? Oh God, I, I get it all the time. Like, first off, I am not one of those people who relishes picking up a phone or knocking on a strange door. I don't particularly like confrontation. Um, it is as hard for me to pick up a phone and call somebody cold at, at the age of 52 as it was as a, as a 22 year old out of college. It, 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 my guts get in knots. I hate it. I really Same. do. Same. Um, yeah. It, it's, and I know there are, I, I, I envy the people who just don't give a shit, but I've never been one of them. And you do get that question a lot and on Skaggs and stuff because, you know, everybody that I was dealing with, um, Eric Kay's family, Tyler Skaggs' family, I didn't deal with his family directly. I, I, I just, you know, his attorney was, was Rusty Harden, who I knew through the Roger Clemens case. Um, you know, all you can do is really just, just go in there with good faith and tell them, because I want to tell a full story. Now, the part that people don't see out there is once in a while, you do get a piece of information that is decidedly unflattering about somebody, but really isn't relevant to the story. And that's a judgment call where I've done that, where you've got somebody where something really bad happened and you've got a piece of information that is interesting and will get attention, but really doesn't add to it. And it's only going to make the lives of the people who survived that person harder. And, you know, I know there are a lot of journalists who would say, well, who the fuck are you to decide? You know, if, if it's news, put it out there. Again, it's about being a human being. And it was funny because I had a case there was where I was talking to a law enforcement agency that was dealing with a particularly sensitive thing. And I mentioned that I knew about X. I'm sorry, I can't be more descriptive. But I and they said, what are you doing with that? I said, I'm not reporting it because that, I said that really doesn't add anything. The family doesn't need to know it. All of a sudden, that agency couldn't do enough for me. Um, and again, I definitely did not do it for that reason. And I wouldn't hold back something I felt was newsworthy for that reason. But all you can do is, is just kind of act on good faith. And, you know, when people say, why are you doing this? Um, tell them if, if you believe it's news, if you believe it's newsworthy, then you can tell them in a straight face because this is newsworthy, because this is part of the story that needs to be told. And if I can't tell them that, then I don't know how I can tell myself, frankly. Man, that is, uh, that's very well said. One of my great regrets is, and it's dumb and small, but uh, I wrote a Walter Payton biography and I found out Walter Payton, this is going to sound dumb, but I found out Walter Payton had herpes, right? It played no role in anything. It literally had nothing to do with anything. And I put it in, nobody said anything about it, but I, I thought back to that as a perfect example of, you don't have to report everything. That, yeah, that came up with, and look, it's tough when I was, I spent seven years on a baseball beat, five of them with the Mets, and my God, is that competitive. And, you know, I got something really interesting about a player who I knew was um, uh, getting therapy for a particular issue that he had. And 
I, it was one of those where I just kind of made a judgment, like, why shouldn't be, he be allowed to do that? Why shouldn't he be able to do that in peace? Right. You know, whatever else is going on with him, it's being discussed in the public. And, and yeah, the team knows about it. And it was one where I just like, God, I hope I don't get burned on this because my ass will be handed to me. But I just felt like, why is the fact that he's a ball player mean that he doesn't get that part of his life, you know? And yeah, I mean, there are lines, uh, I feel like. It, it's, it, look, it's tougher these days. If I was on a baseball beat now where you're not just competing with, with other you know, accredited media, you're competing against anybody with any thought on anything. And any stupid observation can suddenly, you know, mean that you're chasing a, a, a story for a week. Um, you know, it's, a, it's exhausting today. But um, yeah, no, I just, it, 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 we don't always report everything. And that's, you don't want to brag that because you, it makes it sound like you're, you're covering for people or looking out for them. But yeah, I think the way you just said it, like, you know, is it relevant to the story? And if it's not, don't be a prick just because you, you can be. Right. Wait, I want to ask you a final subject because it's where I actually first encountered you, which was covering the New York Mets in the early 2000s. And um, <laughs> well, I was at Sports Illustrated at the time. I was kind of a young guy trying to come up and Tom Verducci would get all the Yankee stuff. And I usually got the Mets. I, I did a lot of Mets back then. I actually love those teams. I really loved covering like Bobby. I found Bobby Valentine a joy, but I was just parachuting in and I found like Al Leiter really entertaining and Lenny Harris and guys like that. I just found that team really entertaining. Do you look back at your Met covering days and think, Jesus Christ, that was the worst period of my life? Or do you look back and say that those are some of the best days of my life? It was, it was great. I mean, you couldn't, you couldn't, there's no amount you could pay me to do it now at this point in my life. But as a young ball writer, I went from all due respect to him, but I, I covered two managers in the majors, Terry Bevington and Bobby Valentine. And Terry, Terry was, you know, interesting guys, not really cerebral. Um, you know, and then Bobby is one of the smartest, most fascinating figures you'd ever meet in your life. And, and there were people it. on that beat do it. Oh, God, did he know it? And he'd let you know it. Um, and that was one of the, you know, the, the beat was really polarized. You had, you know, guys who were known as Bobby's guys. And then there were guys who hated Bobby, like Marty Noble, who, look, I loved Marty. Uh, I thought the world of him. The personal vendetta he had against Bobby, I thought was ridiculous. Um, I felt like my job doesn't change based on how the manager treats me. It's if he's a prick, if he's the nicest guy, it doesn't matter. I have a job to do. And, but he was fascinating. And I, I learned, first of all, just the amount of about baseball I learned from the guy. You want, you want to realize how much you don't know about baseball, hang around a you know, major league clubhouse for a while and realize, oh my God, I don't know a fucking thing. And so he was a fascinating personality. Um, you know, it's fun to watch Piazza get there and just the kind of circus that followed with him. And Al was great to cover. My favorite guys were, um, were all the relief pitchers, like Turk Wendell, um, well, Rick Reed wasn't a, wasn't a reliever. He's a starter, but, you know, fascinating guy with a great story. And Bubba White, um, I'm, I'm forgetting a bunch of guys now. Talk about we come full circle to being old. Lenny Harris, I loved. My, fa my favorite guy I ever covered on any team was Tony Phillips. I had Tony with both the White Sox and the Mets, and he was crazy. And I absolutely loved him. And he would – we just kind of hit it off. I don't know what it was, but he just kind of felt like he could trust me. And so like after his first season with the White Sox, he called me in the off season and said, you know, kid, you know, I got to stop fucking up. Mama's pissed at me. You know, he's like, when I start to say some stupid shit, you got to give me a high sign or something. <laughs> I said, I said, Tony, you know what my job is, right? <laughs> you know, it's like, and he's yelling, don't give me that shit, motherfucker. <laughs> you know, he was, you know, and you know, I wasn't going to clean up Tony Phelps, although he would he'd, he'd talk to him every other word out of his mouth was a, was an F-bomb. And he'd, he'd give you this long, great thing and then say, OK, clean that shit up, kid, and go ahead and use it. And then, you know, and then he gets traded to the Angels and he gets busted for buying crack. And the next week they were coming back to Chicago and I, I start going over to the other clubhouse at Comiskey to talk to him. And my, all these reporters are behind me. 
And if you remember the, you know, if you've been in the dugout there, you go down the steps, little tunnel, and then up the steps to where the clubhouse is. And he's at the top of those steps on the clubhouse phone. And he sees me and he gives me the finger. And, and everybody's looking like, what's going on? And I get to the top of the steps and he sort of pats me on the stomach and goes, how you doing, baby? <laughs> and so he gets off the phone. He says to everybody, look, I'm really sorry. Uh, I can't talk about it. It's a legal matter. Um, I'm so sorry for my teammates and the distraction I've caused. And, you know, I, 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 I want to make this right. And I'm sorry I can't say more. And everybody walks away and he turns and he goes, mama's pissed. <laughs> She's so pissed. And he was this guy, you know, and then he gets to the Mets and he walks in the clubhouse and everyone's coming up to him. And you know what a madhouse that is with the press and you know, everyone's saying hi. He's like, yeah, hi, Tony Phillips. Nice to meet you. Hey, how you doing? Oh, nice to meet you. Yes. Hi, how are you? And he sees me in the back of the clubhouse. He yells, fuck you, TJ. <laughs> and he was this guy who, he was crazy. He didn't know what he was going to say. He beat up a fan of Milwaukee um, who was taunting him during the game. Um, but no you could perfect. just be – no one's perfect. But this was the beauty of Tony, right? Because part of my job then was um, – back when I was at the Daily Southtown, writing about the White Sox, was I had to write a weekly column about the team. And so that was the week he, he called out a fan of Milwaukee and he beat the guy up. And then – so I wrote a column and I went up to him and I said, uh, hey, look, I got a column that's running Sunday. I said, I rip you. I feel like it's fair. But if you got anything to say, I'm here. I'll be here every day. Come say it. And Tony said, kid, I got it coming. Give it to me. Wow. And like from then on, we were fantastic. And so, like, you know, and he knew, like, if there was something to rip, I'd rip. But you could be straight with him. And just being around a guy like that for, for all the years I was. You know, and he, he was such a hard worker and he knew the game so well. Um, and a quick little thing, you mentioned Al Leiter, like Al was great, but I had something similar with him with the Mets where I told, you know, kind of called him out. I was at the Bergen record at the time. And so he, he went and read it and came back and said, hey, look, you know, yeah, you're a little tough on me, but I think it's fair. And you know what? That was really stand up of you to come up and say something. Not everyone would have done that. You and I are OK. And then he gave me shit for the next 18 months. I, there was nothing I could do right. He would just, he would do everything he could to screw with me. And I finally just said, can you let up? And he goes, yeah, all right. It's been long enough. I want to say two things. Number one, Tony Phillips, sadly, uh, died at age 56 of a, of a heart attack about five years ago. And uh, yep. I remember him. It's a really enjoyable they're just those guys with sticks of dynamite who you really enjoy covering. Um, and I wanted to ask, who's the, um, what's the best confrontation you've had? I always have to ask this on this podcast. What's the best confrontation you've had in your career? Wow. The best I can talk about. Um, I'll tell you, a tough one was having to go up to Bill Romanowski in the Raiders locker room um, when he was one of the people connected to, to Victor Conti. And no one else was going to go near the guy. Um, and I just went up and said, I want to talk to you about this. And he turned and looked at me and I thought, I am genuinely intimidated at this moment. Right. <laughs> and, uh, and he just kind of went off for a second, but it wasn't that bad. The best one I have, I can't say who it is, unfortunately, but it was a senior major league baseball official. And <laughs> so this was when, when, after the Balco raid happened, I reached out to a top official at MLB and said, Hey, are you guys doing your own investigation into this, into Barry? And, and this person said, yes, of course we are. We want to know what's going on. Well, the next day I was at the daily news then. And the next day, my good, very dear late friend, Pedro Gomez, um, who I miss so much every day. It's unbelievable. Um, called me and was covering it for ESPN and said, hey, just want to give you a heads up. So-and-so uh, in Major League Baseball said that the story is wrong. And, you know, said TJ's way out on his skis on this one. And it was the same person I'd talked to who gave me the information. I said, who said that? And he told me. I said, all right, thanks. So I called Rich Levin, who was then the spokesman for MLB. And said, Rich, you guys really putting it out there that my story is wrong? He said, yeah, sorry, TJ. Uh, but it just is. I said, okay, Rich, put it around the office. I'm going to out my source. 
and hung up. And three minutes later, I get a phone call. Whoa, 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 whoa. Hold on a second. And I start screaming, you know, what the fuck are you doing? And he's like, hold on. You're no, no, no. You hear what you want to hear. You're full of shit. And I said, you lying fucking piece of shit. I'm screaming. And he says, oh, careful. You might damage our relationship. I said, damage. Fuck you. I'll never believe another word you say. I swear to you, this is verbatim. I'm going to think it's hyperbolic. No, I'm telling you, this was it. We're screaming at each other. And he finally said, look, Bud was pissed. He wanted us to knock it down. I'm sorry. I owe you. That is That story is wow. 100% true. Um, and that person ended up being a good source on a couple of things. Not great. But I just was one of those, I've got nothing left left to lose. I don't know if I actually would have outed him as a source, um, but I, I sure felt like it in the moment. <laughs> That's awesome. You know, I'm a huge fan of any, like, I've always wanted to write an article, like a deep, deep dive into, uh, you probably know about this one, Will McDonough of the Boston Globe punched Raymond Claiborne of the New England Patriots. Oh, God, I, yes. I love journalism strikes back stories. So I feel like that's a pretty solid journalism strikes. I don't have any great journalism strikes back story. So that's a pretty good one. So I give you props for that. Well, it was completely heat of the moment. I felt I had nothing to lose at that moment. Um, but I was glad I did it. And later on, I talked to somebody else and said, why does so-and-so talk to me now? And the person said, because you stood up to him and nobody ever does that. And it was, it's not that I'm not especially brave. I was just especially pissed. And sometimes that's, that's better than, than, yeah. than courage. The power of adrenaline. Let me ask you a final, final thing. You, cause you mentioned him. We both knew him. Um, Pedro Gomez, who died uh, last year, you were, uh, he was one of the best guys in baseball, obviously, and just a really gem of a human being. It, it does seem like the outpouring for him was significantly greater than when most of us pass, you know, like most of us pass. Right. If we're lucky, we get an obit somewhere, you know, like it felt like there was something very sort of profound and very just raw and sad besides the fact that he was way too young. Like what, what would you say it was about Pedro that sort of elicited that response? Uh, I mean, I was devastated. He really was one of my closest friends. All three of my kids lost it. Absolutely lost it. All three of them knew him. He was, I think it was a couple of things. One, you know, Keith Olbermann said not long after he died. Um, the thing about Pedro is he was everybody's best friend. And not in the sense that he's like, you know, this is my exclusive best friend, my only number one. Just the quality of his friendship. That when you were around Pedro, his life was this constant celebration of the people around him. And he was, you know, like when my youngest, Mikey, who's a, who's a baseball player, anytime he pitched, if I wasn't updating Pedro quickly enough, you know, like pitch to pitch what was going on in his games, he'd scream at me. You know, when he'd come to my house, first thing he'd do, Mikey, let's go backyard now, you know, grab the tee, grab the bat. Let's see the swing. Let's see. All right. Let's see your motion. Just, you know, the way he would involve yourself himself in, in your lives. Um, but he also... God, I don't know. It's, I mean, it's still hard to talk about not losing it. And it's been months now. Um, he, uh, he had such heart, but also such integrity, you know, he was part of it was just how worthwhile he was. I was with him most of the day on the day he ripped uh, Kurt Schilling before game seven of the 2001 world series. And, you know, he was, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm sure, you know, Steve Ketman, um, who was you know, probably, you know, Pedro's closest friend. And is, he's put together this incredible collection of essays, um, a book that's going to come out in, in July. And I contributed one about the Schilling column. And part of what I loved about him so much was he knew Schilling was full of shit. He knew he needed to be called out. And he also knew that as the lead columnist for the Arizona Republic, he had to do it. And it wasn't for clickbait. It wasn't to troll for the sake of trolling. It wasn't a hot take. It was what he truly believed that this guy has been all about himself since he got there. And he wrote this fantastic column. And we had this moment in the press box before the game where he said, I need to go down there, don't I? And I said, yeah, you do. And he wasn't really asking me. I mean, he was going to go no matter what, but he knew you rip somebody, you had better show up and be there to take it. And so we went down to the field together and just walked around foul territory, you know, 
um, during batting practice. So if anybody wanted to take a shot at him, they could. And Greg Swindell was coming off the field. He'd been shagging and saw Pedro and walked over and stuck out his hand and he shook Pedro's and he nodded his head like, yep. And then turned around and walked into the dugout. And Pedro said, did you see that? Like, yeah, I saw that. And it was everything about him, the integrity, but also he was not fearless. He he did not have, you know, impenetrably thick skin. It bothered him if people got on him. Right. But he did the job anyway. And it was just like how he lived his whole life. And I think, I don't know. It, it's when well, you talk about how you want to be remembered. It's actually, I think the, uh, the title of the book is Remember Who You Are. Um, that, you know, he could love people so completely and still do what needed to be done and do it in a way that, made you love him more. Um, I, you know, I don't know. It's, it's hard to say, but it's, I, I, I've, I've lost a lot of people over the years. And I've never, I don't know. I've ever felt someone's death in, in the way I feel it is, you know, it is a daily constant kind of gnawing. It really, goddamn, do I miss him? You were talking about the nervousness of cold calling people. And then you're talking about Pedro going down to see Kurt Schilling and I've knocked on a lot of doors and made calls that I hate. People think that it's, it's fearless, but it's actually not. You just kind of learn to walk through that fear. Like that's just it. Yeah. You have to walk through that fear, but I'm, you know, I'm 49. You're, I don't know, 51, 52, whatever. Like it's always fucking terrifying. You just learn to deal with it. It absolutely should be terrifying because, you know, part of that terror, what it does is it keeps you, you know, keeps you sharp, but also like, I, I never forget. And I don't care who it is that even if it's the biggest prick in the world, I'm writing about a human being. I'm right. reporting on a human being. And part of that terror is, you know, I'm not a reporter calling a source or a target of a story or whatever. I'm a person calling another person. And you don't ever want to lose that because if you have to put up this shield where, or if you find yourself so callous about it that you really don't give a shit how somebody reacts, how they treat you, how they feel about it, then you can't have that, you know, that quintessential quality a reporter needs of empathy. And, you know, even if it's a prick, you have to listen. That prick has a story that, you know, nothing is so easy. There are not bad guys and good guys. There are bad things and good things that people do. Um, you know, like covering Barry Bonds, look, Barry treated us like shit most of the time. But I also had some bizarrely human moments with him. Like, you know, 2007, I went on this trip to uh, to Ghana with a bunch of people from Major League Baseball and, you know, Dusty Baker and, um, and one of my favorite human beings, Reggie Smith. And Reggie is Barry's, I think, second cousin or something. And this was like one of those moments, you know, I guess they're mostly apocryphal, but like, you know, World War One, where the Germans and the British would play soccer between the trenches. And then the, you know, the, the whistle would blow and they'd run back to the trenches and shoot at each other. Um, Barry starts talking in a clubhouse one time about wanting to, to do all this travel when he's finished, including Africa. And I said, did Reggie tell you about the trip to Ghana? And he said, no, no. I said, I'm meeting to call him. I said, I was on that trip. And now Barry's asking me about, oh, what was it like to be at the slave castles? What did you see? You know, and it's this really kind of human moment. It didn't change the way I wrote about him. And he was just as big a prick to me the next day. Um, but you can't lose track of who this guy is. And, you know, like your book, I mean, it was, you got some amazing stuff. And his relationship with Bobby and, you know, what that did to form him and, you know, Anyway, it's, I know you're talking about just the fear of cold, cold calling somebody, but the fear is what, what keeps you human and, and keeps you sharp. Because I, I don't want to fuck up a story for two reasons. One, yes, it'll make me bad, look bad, and maybe I could be sued. But two, it's somebody else's life. And if I get it wrong, that means I just did them an enormous injustice. So, you know, God help me if I ever forget that. Everyone should have one experience covering Barry Bonds or someone like Barry Bonds in their life. <laughs> it changes you forever. Is there someone like Barry Bonds? It always made me furious how he treated Pedro. And I always found it amazing how Pedro would always return the next day with a kind of bounce in his step. 
And someone told me when, um, after Pedro passed it, Barry Bonds sent flowers to the house. And I thought, there you go. You know, he did. I, I didn't know if that was public or not, but a friend who was there sent me a picture of him. Um, he did. And I mean, I was with Pedro, you know, one spring when we walked in for Barry's first presser and the first thing out of his mouth is you still lying Gomez. And I'm, again, I'm standing with him and Pedro, you could see the look on his face of oh, shit. Now I have to deal with this, but he never stopped being Pedro and he never made it personal. He really, he never made it personal, but he also never backed down, which is, you know, God, I really love the guy. I mean, it's amazing. It is amazing that his assignment, his assignment was to cover Barry Bonds. It's like your right. assignment is to get lice and then try getting all the lice off of you. Like, it's like, you know, it's like. <laughs> We'd stand on the field and the stuff that people would shout on him. And, you know, it was, and oh my God, all the racist bullshit that he had to, had to put up with. And, you know, it was endless. I mean, that was, God, when you wrote the shilling column, and I walk into the to the press box, and it's you know hours before the the game, and he's like, "Come here," and he plays his work voicemail for me. And the first thing is a guy saying, "You piece of shit, wetback motherfucker." And Pedro looks at me, and goes, he "Goes wetback?" He said, "I'm Cuban. We flew here." <laughs> and he was kind of laughing it off, but I also like it really, really got to him. Yeah. You know, he hated that shit. He never. He never stopped being a person. And yeah, that, that he, like he, he hated that assignment with Barry. He really, he really did. He handled it well. He handled it well. Well, TJ, man, this is, this usually goes 40 minutes. It's been, this is great. I love this stuff. And uh, as I get older to go back to where we begin, the people who sort of you saw early in your career, they start dropping off, not dead, but dropping off and leaving journalism and leaving journalism. And, um, you know, I've always sort of admired the way you sustained and had this really, just fantastic career. And uh, you were always at one thing I will say, you were always a nice guy when, you know, like it'd be easy to be a dick to this sports illustrator guy who parachutes in and what the fuck does this guy know? And why is he getting time with so-and-so? And it's the only, cause you're working for a magazine that mattered at the time. It wasn't like I did anything, but you were always like a nice guy and always a decent guy and always sort of a human. And I always appreciated that. So I, I feel like you've, you've always had that in your career and it's, it's definitely done you well. So I appreciate you doing this. I appreciate that. I want to thank today's guest, TJ Quinn, for joining me on Two Riders Singing Yang. You can follow TJ on Twitter at TJ Quinn ESPN and see his work on ESPN. If you have a chance and you enjoy Two Riders Singing Yang, please consider going to the vehicle of your choice and leaving a nice review. I make no money for doing this and I depend on word of mouth. Music is by the great MC White Owl. Thanks again for joining me and remember, keep riding.